0: It's time for another episode of Spies, Lies,
1: and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes, right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Today, my guest is Matt Scott. He is the author of the wildly popular Surviving the Lion's Den trilogy, of thrillers published by Speaking Volumes and is available everywhere now. Matt, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Sure. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your trilogy and the latest?
1: The latest is actually going to be The Ayatollah Takedown, which came out uh, just uh, on March 21st. But it concludes the series, the, the Surviving the Lion's Den series, and what happened was um i'll try and make this as brief as i can i i didn't really get into reading a lot until i started reading vince flynn in the mm. in the 2000s so that that's really what, what hooked me in and then you know evolved into you know brad Thor and a lot of the other guys so i just kind of started you know absorbing you know the the genre and you know i so i started developing some ideas around iran because I, I was always kind of fascinated by the 1953 coup but, you know, self-doubt and all that stuff kind of crep, creeps in. And I went to a book signing with David Baldacci, and I told—I was 39 at the time. I asked him when I got up to the table. I was like, "Look, it's 42 old to write your first novel." And I kid you not, he stopped mid-signature, looks up at me like this, and says, "Hell no! What are you waiting for?" So right. at that point, I, you know, it's like, you know, this guy's sold, you know, 250 million copies or whatever it is. I mean, you know, I've got no excuses now. So. I went home and I started writing uh, Surviving the Lions Den. And I was really um, kind of captivated by the da Vinci Code when when it came out, because that's really mm-hmm. kind of what got me into to reading. I mean, Dan Brown got me back into reading Vince Flynn and Brad Thorne, and those guys made sure I stayed there. So with regards to the Da Vinci Code, I really wanted to do something with Iran that you know gives people takes people on a tour of the country because most Westerners, especially Americans, have no idea what it's like. Um, so I I was benefited by the fact that even though the Iranians are hard on the internet and Facebook and Twitter, for whatever reason, Instagram and YouTube, they're very lenient on, so everybody's got a dash cam or something, so I can kind of see, you know, the locations that I wanted to put into my novel, so I kind of started it there, and I started it off with a personal story with a guy named Kurt Carruthers, who goes over to Iran, for revenge because his father had been involved in the the 1953 coup of Mohammad Mossadegh and um, uh, the takedown of Mossadegh, excuse me. And, uh, you know, the Iranians uh, had assassination squads out hunting these guys. So he goes over there for revenge, but then separately I have a a story about, you know, a kidnapped CIA agent named Tom DeLange and their their stories kind of converge. And that was intentional because I wanted people to be able to see Iran through one character's eyes but the story does not exist without the CIA character which I really I really wanted to write about so it kind of evolves from there and then when I did Iranian Deception I said you know my publisher you know when they read the the proposal for the first book he's like this is really good but I don't want one I want a series so I'm like okay I, I was on the phone with this guy and like that I had to come up with two other ideas, and I had nothing more than ideas. I mean, literally, nothing on paper. Just, I was like, well, you know, maybe I could do this. And um, so I came up with two more ideas off the top of my head. The first one was the Iranian deception. I was like, let me put together the two worst governments in the history of like the 20, 21st century, and let's, let's mm-hmm. see if the Iranians have a secret tie to the Nazis. Let's do something with that. So, okay. I I did that and I introduced a I, I didn't really introduce a new character. I introduced Ben Thrasher in Lion's Den. Um, but I kind of felt like Kurt Carruthers' journey, my protagonist from the first novel, I felt like his journey was kind of done uh because he went over there to you know get revenge for his grandfather. So I introduced Ben Thrasher in book one, but I made him the protagonist in book two. And the uh the gist of the the pitch for the um for the remaining deception is uh the supreme leader has died and his replacement is named within three hours and he has a plan mm-hmm. to rule the middle east using a secret connection to the nazis so okay. ben thrasher kind of kind of goes over to iran and you know does his thing and you know it's, it was it was my that book was my attempt at mission impossible and it was a lot of fun right there's had a lot of little elements going to it but It was a lot of fun to write. And I left the Iranian deception off with a cliffhanger because in my novels, I have a character named Farad. And Farad is a guy that, you know, is very much, I think, the everyday Iranian. And in other words, he's living under the fist of the Ayatollah regime Mm -hmm. and he's a smuggler. He's trying to get beer and all kinds of, all the forbidden stuff out of there, just trying to figure out how to make a living because inflation is so high over there. So at the end of the Iranian deception, he gets captured and the guard, the, the chief commander of the Revolutionary Guard tells him, I wanna take down the Ayatollah and you and the CIA are gonna help me. So that's, okay. where we, that's where we kick off the third novel, the Ayatollah takedown. And that's my attempt to kind of bring things full circle, look at you know the 1953 coup once again, and t- kind of take a look at what a regime change would look like in Iran Through a very creative lens. Uh, Chapter 33 of my novel of the Ayatollah Takedown is, uh, I I think it's really outside the box. I I really wanted to do something that was kind of crazy like that. Uh, Sometimes some movies, some books, you know, you can just look at one chapter and you say, you know, if I'm going to buy this, this is the chapter that's going to make me read the rest of it. And it was pretty much a gamble on my part, but I wanted to roll the dice and I came up with something that's pretty good. And um, you know, if, if regime change happens in, uh, in Iran like that, then uh, all of a sudden I'm a genius, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> but, uh, if not, exactly. If not, you know, I think regime change will eventually happen. I think it will probably happen. It, it happen in a more pr- practical sense, but, you know, novels are not meant to be practical. You know, let's have, let's have some fun with it. And it was my attempt to say, this is how it should happen. Uh, from from the inside, so that's that's kind of how I how I wrap it up.
0: Exactly. Wow. I mean, you must have had to do an awful lot of research into uh, the Iranian political infrastructure over the years yeah. in order to craft such a trilogy.
1: I well, what I did was I, I read a lot of books about um, you know Iranians that have moved to America and lived uh, lived over there and were imprisoned in Evan Prison. And Evan Prison is something that I that I feature um in my in book three um so i read that i read uh, mark bowden's book guests of the ayatollah which was uh, about the um, uh, american uh, embassy workers the diplomats that were kept hostage uh, by ayatollah Khomeini in between 1979 and when reagan was elected uh, right. in 81. so i did a lot of research there uh, youtube was a a really big help because i could you know, I, when I started looking geographically at it, you know, I wanted to see some of the different locations, you know, and how could I, how can I fit this in? So all the, the CIA stuff, you know, kind of comes from Brad Thor and, and, and Vince Flynn and some of the other, you know, Facebook group pages that I'm on and, mm-hmm. you know, additional research as well. But with regards to Iran, um, I really had to do a, a good amount of research to find out how these things work and you know what it looks like and there was a really good documentary on amazon i think and it was called iran uh, everything is forbidden but nothing is allowed or or something like that i can't remember the exact title but it's essentially it was about the people living under the ayatollah regime and trying to figure out a way to get by Uh, Mm -hmm. and you know in that documentary you really figure out you know most of these people really are not the fanatics that um, you know the the West makes them out to be. I mean, mm-hmm. sure there sure there is a ten percent, and that ten percent is incredibly dangerous. And you don't, yeah, you know, those are the ones you have to stand up to. But not everyone is like that. So right. that was a, that was an, an important theme for me is that I wanted the readers to see the Iranians as uh, the, the typical Iranian who's just living over there trying to get by, and not see them as as the enemy. See them as somebody that you know they want freedom too right
0: right and a lot of people don't realize how much of a modern society iran was up until about the 1950s and 60s if you look at some of those old documentaries you've just mentioned and i've seen a couple of them under the shah it was a completely modern looking city and a modern society wasn't it
1: oh very much so yeah i mean i think i think a lot of the iranians will probably tell you that you know it was um I won't say it was too modern, but, you know, the Shah, you know, he wasn't great as well. I mean, he had his he had his torture squads with the Savak Mm -hmm. and and stuff like that. But if you compare that to what to where they're at now, I mean, it's it's night and day. I mean, those days, you know, women can walk around in skirts, you know, they can have, you know, skin much more exposed, although not probably like, you know, some of the millennials dressed today. Right. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was, it was definitely much more modern. I think that, you know, a lot of that comes from the Western influence that came out of the, the 1953 coup. Um, right. So in that, in that way, it was, you know, the coup was, you know, can be viewed as a success in a lot of ways, but maybe long term, not so much. And that's kind of one of the things that I, I like to revisit in the Ayatollah takedown as well.
0: Over the course of the last three books, I know that you said this was your first foray into creative writing. What right. did you learn about your own creativity from when you started the first book all the way up until you finished this third book?
1: Um, I I think the, the biggest thing in terms of the writing process that I learned is to trust my instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the reasons I got, I wanted to write, you know, the novel was, you know, at, at the time I was... Uh, working an eight to five job that I just I really was not happy and I was um, not moving up the ladder the way I thought I I should and the bureaucracy of it was really starting to annoy me so I wanted to do something where I was totally in in control and you know so I I just kind of did it my way I mean I didn't know I I did not read any any books on writing process I just kind of listened to what some of the other guys said that they did and I tried to do it on my own and, you know, just for general reference, um, you know, what I'll do is I'll, I'll have an idea. I'll, I'll think about what the characters, you know, where they're at at the last book, where I want to take them, um, some of the, the plot lines, and I'll just start outlining it on paper. Um, and I'll get maybe half to two thirds of the way through. And then at okay. that point, you know, panic kind of sets in I'm like, oh, my God, I've only got like two thirds of the novel. How am I going to get the, the rest of it? So I put it on an Excel spreadsheet. And what I'll do is I'll go in, I'll start writing. I'll write the I'll write a chapter, go downstairs. My chapter is usually about anywhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred words a day. That's generally my number. okay um, and then you know, I'll go downstairs, have dinner with the wife, you know, go to bed. Next day I get up whenever whenever it is that I do write, I'll reread what I wrote the day before, do some a, a small amount of editing, say, okay, this sounds a lot better, and that kind of gets the creative juices flowing, and then I'll write. Right. The next chapter. So because I never stop in the middle of a chapter. That's that's the one hard, fast rule I have is I do not stop. The chapter okay. has to be finished by the end of the day. Um and the greatest thing that ever happened to me during this process for all three books is I'll start out a chapter and I'll be looking at my outline. I'm like, man, I don't know how I'm gonna get fraud or Ben Thrasher out of this. I mean I just I just got to go to it because my outline will say something as simple as, you know, Terry went into the palace. And that's right. it. And so I so that is the limit of my outline because I don't want to do too much. I have to I have right. to sit in the chair and write by the seat of my pants at that. So it's just a right. matter of okay, I'm going this way. Um, so the best thing that ever happened to me was I'll be writing it and then I'll figure it out during the course of the process. And that is and that's just trusting your instincts. That's knowing your character. That's knowing your plot line. And at the end, when I finish that chapter, you know, I just kind of sit back like man, that was good. So I go downstairs, I'll have my celebratory (laughs) shot of Jack Daniels. And, uh, you know, I just kind of, then I do the same thing the next day. So uh, I I didn't have any any type of platform or outline or guideline or blueprint, whatever you want to call it. I just did it my way. And I think, you know, a lot of the um the writing skills that i developed in college because i went to a very college that was very heavy on writing even though we were doing essays you know mostly at the time i think Mm -hmm. that helped i think you add in the what i've read you know over the years has helped but uh in the end it was just about i i have to do this my way Mm -hmm. and it you know sometimes your gut will never steer you wrong even if you're wrong you're going to be glad you did it because you would you would have regretted not doing it so right
0: and you That's, also sometimes learn something, too, from going down the wrong
1: path, don't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm a bit of an overwriter. You know, a lot of my, my novels, I think all three of my novels, the first novel ended up being 130,000 words the wow. <laughs> first time around. So there was a lot of cutting that needed to be done. The plot was a little bit different. It had three friends that go over to Iran. And so I had to, I had to fix that up. Um, right. But being an overwriter is actually, to me, is a good thing, because then the delete key is your friend. You don't have to worry right. about it you know, anything, if you're, if you're an underwriter, then you, you go to the editing process and you're like, you know, I, I, I went through this before. I don't feel like going through it again. Now that doesn't work. So it's easy, always right. easier to cut than it is to add. And, you know, it, I just found the process that, that just works for me. I, I, it's very, it's a very strange thing, but at the, at the same time, it also makes me feel like I have, you know, this is the one gift that I have that may be God given. So I just, as right. long as I trust myself, um, I'll, I'll be fine. Right. Yeah. And that's it, too. I mean, you can teach certain parts
0: of writing You can teach about, um, you know, structure and voice and consistency, but you can't, there's no substitute for actually just sitting down and doing the hard work, is there?
1: No, no, absolutely not. And, you know, the best thing about it is, you know, when you're in the chair, you're in control. Right. You, you have, I mean, you can you can read that any number of ways that you want. You can be, oh, my God, I, I, I'm the one that has to do this no, don't, don't do that to yourself. You, this is what you, this is what you want. This is, you know, how you want to write, just, just go out and do it. And, you know, mm-hmm. the confidence you'll have in yourself by just sitting out and doing it is, I mean, I, I don't think it's measurable. And that's been one of the best things that's happened to me is just, I decided that I wanted to do this. This is mm-hmm. how I want to do it. And now I'm, I'm going to get it done. And, um, you know, no matter you know, what happens down the road, I can be proud of myself for, for that.
0: Exactly right, exactly right. And they've all been well-received and well-reviewed as well. Uh, I know that you've written three books in this genre. And now that you've gotten your writing legs under you, uh, is there another type of genre that you are thinking about? Or are you, do you think you're going to stay pretty much in the thriller lane?
1: Um... Well, the, the, the third novel wraps up my contract with Speaking Volumes, so I'm kind of waiting to see what happens after mm-hmm. that, but I can't see myself leaving the, the thriller genre. I've got some other ideas, uh, one about North Korea that I think I'd like to do. Uh, okay. I think, you know, one of the things, you know, I've always heard is, you know, write what you like to read. Um, right. simply because that's, you know, I think it makes the creative juices flow. Uh, considerably better now. I am a bit of a horror uh, uh, fan in terms of novels, so I, I would always like to maybe write a, a good horror novel. But I may I might be out of my lane a little bit on that one, so we'll we'll have to see. Uh, that one I may have to stay just a fanboy. But the the thriller genre, I think, because I, I I feel like I'm always willing to learn, and you know watch documentaries, you know just because of the sheer interest of it. Right. I, I, I kind of see myself staying in the thriller genre.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. And, you know, you're you right with what you're comfortable with doing, and you've definitely had a lot of success with it. And who knows, maybe in the future, after you've done a couple of more thrillers, you might be willing to take that leap into the thriller genre. I will say Absolutely. that I, what little I know of that genre, it is completely different than thrillers. And there's oh, a sure. lot of different, <laughs> there's a lot of different bands out there that are very expressive, just like you've got with thrillers. But I think that, the, the thriller audience is a little bit more forgiving than the horror uh, audience
1: seems to be sometimes. I think I think so too. I mean, you, you can get away, you can get get away with a lot. I think in in the thriller genre, as long as you're in the ballpark, if you get something blatantly wrong, then you know right. the, the audience is gonna is gonna come after you. Uh, in the horror genre, because it, it is so creative, and I mean, it is 100% creative. You're not really gonna base it off of you know anything that essentially anything that happens in real life i mean so you have you have given the audience this world and whether you like it or not the rules that you've written for that world apply when the readers are reading it so when right. you deviate from those rules they tend to they tend to come after you now if you, you but at the same time is you know in the horror genre you're making the rules up as you go along so sometimes you can you can trick your audience a little bit but I I tend to wanna be a little bit more grounded. So I think that's why the thriller genre works for me.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It certainly does. Well, you've got a lot that you've already done in a very short amount of time. And I would be willing to bet you've got a lot more that's going to be in store for you and your career. I was wondering how can people continue to keep in touch with you, follow your career as it continues to grow?
1: Uh, You can always check out my website, uh, mattscottbooks.com. Um, you can, if you want to send me an email from there, you certainly can, um, on, uh, uh Facebook. I have my personal account, uh, message me, friend me anytime. I don't turn anybody down, uh, Instagram and Twitter. It's at Matt Scott books, and you can uh, message me there as well. I, I return all messages, no matter what it is. Even if you're, you're crucifying my book, I will, I will at least say, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to read it. So yeah, you can always reach me there. And I, I, I never turn away a fan. Absolutely never. Okay.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. And that's definitely the way to be. Well, I thank you. And I know my audience thanks you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it.
1: No, thank you so much for having me on. It's been an honor. I really appreciate oh, it. Of
0: course. No, it's, it's been great having you. Everyone, once again, this has been Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the show is Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Don't forget to check out Best Little Books for the best thrillers, reviews, and giveaways in the business that's bestthrowerbooks.com thank you for your time and attention everybody we'll see you next time
1: you have been listening to spies lies and private eyes with host terence mccauley on authors on the air global radio network